And now we're going to get going, continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark. So if you have a Bible, let me encourage you, as I always do, to open it up with us to Mark chapter 9. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, feel free to grab a blue pew one, looks like this, in front of you. And you can turn to page 844 in that to get to Mark chapter 9. And this is, uh, we have a lot to unpack this morning, so we need to get going right away. But uh, what we're going to see this morning is a very familiar passage if you have a church background. It's famously known as the Transfiguration. Transfiguration. Again, that's a familiar word for you if you kind of grew up in this context, but if not, it's probably not a word you've heard before because we don't really use it anymore or hear it anymore. And I think the reason is because uh, the word simply means to change, to change. And simply put, I, I think it's just easier to say change than transfiguration. I think eventually we figured that out. And so we don't hear transfiguration in our day-to-day language. It just means to change. But it's a simple story to say what happened. Could take you just a few seconds to go through what happened in the transfiguration. Jesus goes up and hikes up a mountain. He brings his three closest disciples with him, and his physical nature transforms. It changes before them. And then things go back to normal. They come back down the mountain, and it won't be referenced again for the rest of the gospel. But what we're after this morning, the question we want to answer is why did this happen? We can say what happened. You've probably known what happened even before we start. But have you asked, ever asked the question, why? Why does this happen? Well, what's the purpose of this? Does it accomplish anything of significance for the disciples? Is it, is it significant for you at all today sitting in the pew? Is this story significant for you? This is a sermon uh, that prayerfully will engage your mind And then, Lord willing, by the end, pierce your heart. That's what I'm after. And so I challenge you to hang with me, to see this through, and then see what God has in store for us at the end. We're going to be looking at the first 13 verses of chapter 9. And we're going to spend the bulk of our time in verses 2 through 8. But the the kind of setup for this story and then the aftermath of the story both play important parts in rounding it out. So we're going to start with the setup, just verse 1, and then talk about it. Chapter 9, verse 1. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. I intentionally left this verse for this morning's message, even though it's actually the conclusion of Jesus' teaching that we heard last week. All right, so quick refresher if you forgot or maybe were not here last week. Um, After the disciples rightly identified Jesus as the Christ, it took them a long time, but chapter 8, right, we saw that happen. Jesus goes immediately to say two really, really difficult things. He says the Messiah will suffer. He'll be rejected and he'll be killed by the Jewish elite and then three days later rise again. It's one hard thing. And then he says a second, if you want to be my disciple, you must deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. All right, so we saw last week messiahship and discipleship. That glory comes from suffering, and the cross stands at the center of both. If you missed last week's sermon, I would encourage you to go back online or through the church app and listen to it, because it is a really crucial sermon in the gospel of Mark, because it kind of sets the tone for everything we're going to be seeing in the back half of the gospel. But, but the disciples at that point are probably a little shell-shocked, right? Put yourself in their shoes. 
They finally declared the truth that he is the Christ, and then they hear this back. Like, that's just hard to hear. It's not what they expected. And so Jesus, seeing that they're probably just struggling with this, like, how do I grasp this? Then, then he gives this prophetic promise, this verse 1, truly, I tell you, some standing here will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. You see, the Christian life, it's, it's not without encouragement. It's not just suffering with no joy. It's, it's joy in suffering, right? That's the paradox of the whole Christian life. Jesus says, on one hand, you must take up your cross. The cross, man, was a symbol of death, a symbol of execution. Take up your own death. And then, right after that, some of you will not taste death until you see the kingdom of God. All right, so we can just grant it right out. Like, that's a little confusing, isn't it? Take up your cross. Some of you will not taste death. But it's not a contradiction. It's a paradox. To save your life, you must lose it first. Deny yourself daily, and in doing so, you will save your soul. Isn't that just what this is all about? Isn't that the Christian life? To save your life, you must lose it first. So Jesus says this to encourage his disciples. Listen, fellas, despite how hard your life is going to be, and it's going to be hard, it's the only life worth living because it reflects the life that I'm living. And so still for us today, every command you read in the Bible, whether from Jesus or inspired by the Holy Spirit from another person saying it, every command needs to be heard in light of what Jesus has already done. Jesus will never call you to do something he has not already done. Never separate what you need to do from what Jesus has already done. Okay, so you might even say, like, that's a little confusing, but paradox, not contradiction, that seems to fit. But what does that statement actually mean? Some of you will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Like, what does that actually mean? And so this is why I saved verse 1 for this week's sermon, because that's a prophetic statement, right? He's casting something out into the future. And while there are a variety of interpretations amongst historians and commentators on that verse, I think what's most convincing is that Jesus is really kind of talking about two things here. There's one thing that he's kind of talking about in general, but then there's an immediate uh, prophecy that he will see come to fruition. I think think first, long term, he's talking of the resurrection. Guys, the kingdom of God will come in its power when the Father raises Jesus from the dead. He's already telling them he's going to raise him from the dead, but they're, they're just not really getting it. They don't really know what that means. They don't know what to do with that. But after I have accomplished my purpose to come in the form of man, to take the sins of the world upon myself so that others may go free, and I rise from the dead, some of you will see that. But then specifically... I think he's specifically previewing what's about to happen in the following verses, right? The transfiguration. He's about to take some of them, three exactly, up to the top of a mountain where they're going to witness something so powerful that words will literally fail them. Okay, I think the reason for this is that you got Matthew, Mark, and Luke, or three of the four gospel writers that are kind of most similar in their structure and their format. They're called the synoptic gospels. But the thing about them is that while they have the same structure, they are very different in chronological order. So ancient biographies back in the day were not like biographies today in that they were not categorized by chronological order. You read a biography today, it probably starts chapter one with their birth, it probably ends with their death. And it goes through their life in that way. But ancient biographies were 
um, written around purpose and theme. And so you have Matthew, Mark, and Luke kind of all doing things in their own chronological uh, order in order to accomplish their own personal theme and purpose. And yet, this is a rare case where they're all in agreement. This verse precedes the transfiguration in all three. Mark will begin the next verse by saying, after six days, meaning six days after he says this, they're going to head up the mountain. And we know Mark, we've seen this all throughout the gospel. He never gives us timing. He has no care for when things happen or trying to let the reader know how much time passes, except right here, he says specifically, after six days. Okay, so this is why I think Jesus is saying some of you, specifically three of you, are about to see something powerful. And that's where we'll go. Let's read together. Follow along. Verses 2 through 8. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Again, for many of you, there's nothing shocking in that passage. You've probably heard it dozens of times before. But, but I wonder if you've ever considered it in context with the rest of the gospel. Like, why does he do this now? What's his aim in bringing them up the mountain at this point in his ministry? And the more you dig into the story, the more you'll find that this story is a connector. It's a connector from the Old Testament to the New Testament. It is loaded with allusions to the Old Testament. We actually won't even be able to cover them all. And then it previews the end of the New Testament. So this story kind of shows the Bible is one story, unified story. Jesus was never plan B, right? He has always been the fulfillment of every promise that the Bible has ever put forth. And Jesus' message to his disciples, our message to the church should never be, guys, you can throw out your Old Testament. You don't need it now. No, it's, you need to go back to the Old Testament and see everything in light of him. And the first connection is from Exodus 24. There's a story that was written about 1,500 years earlier when Moses had his three closest men go up to Mount Sinai. Moses had just taken um, all of Israel out of Egypt in the Exodus, right? Cross the Red Sea, go into the wilderness, and they set up camp around Mount Sinai. And God calls him to bring his three closest disciples to the top of the mountain. And they were there, by the way, for six days. Exodus chapter 24, and at the top of the mountain, the glory of the Lord dwelt in the cloud. And it's here where God provided Moses the tablets of stone, which were, which were the law, right? God's law for his people. And now, 1,500 years later, a strangely familiar story in the Gospels. Jesus heads up a mountain with his three closest followers, Jesus as the fulfillment to the law that was given to Moses in Exodus 24. Old Testament, God gave his people the law. New Testament, God gives people his son, Jesus Christ. 
law, and grace. This story is a connector. So I want to go through this kind of top of the mountain scene and kind of point out five sequences we've seen, kind of break it apart into uh, four, actually four kind of smaller scenes. First, the transformation. So Jesus takes this inner circle of disciples, Peter, John, and James, three of the twelve, and they head up a mountain. It doesn't tell us which mountain, but most historians and commentators agree it was Mount Hermon, which is in northern Galilee, present-day Syria, stands 9,000 feet above sea level. I think we have a picture to show you. Nice Mount Hermon, snow-capped mountains in the midst of the desert. Pretty high up, a nice one- to two-day hike, at least, all right? And he gets up there, and he's transfigured, we're told. His appearance, his appearance changes. Physical appearance changes. Mark tells us his clothes become radiant, intensely white, like a kind of white that, especially in the first century, they could have never gotten it to be naturally. Matthew, in his account, tells us that Jesus' face shone like the sun, Right? It'd be like staring into the sun, so radiant it blinds the eyes. And so, um, have you ever had a time where you're just indoors for a long period of time in a windowless room? And you walk outside for the first time in like the noonday sun, and it's just piercing the eyes, like you can't even look. When I used to work in the city, there would be plenty of mornings that you guys can resonate with. I'd be in the office before the sun would even rise. Right, so it's kind of dark, dark. You're in the office. My uh, room within our office building was kind of the center of the office, so it had no windows around me. So it might not be till noon, one o'clock. I might step outside for the first time, especially like a winter, sunny winter day. You kind of walk out into the city streets and just be like, "Oh my gosh! Like, what is happening right now? Like, I feel like a vampire coming out into sunlight. This is horrible." I just referenced the vampire in a sermon that was not in the script. I'm probably gonna edit that out. All right, but here's the, like here's the idea. Like, like that, that idea that we've all been there, being like that is just so bright. Like, that is what Jesus looked like in his appearance. They couldn't even look at him. And the picture that that paints for us to see in our minds, that is totally unique to Scripture. There's nothing in the ancient world literature that reflects anything remotely close to this. A physical transformation. And it's not only physically stunning, but it's theologically stunning. In this moment, Jesus' divine nature shines forth a pillar of what we believe in Christian theology is that Jesus was 100% man and 100% God. He's not a mixture of natures, right, in the incarnation. He's not 50-50. He's one person, two distinct natures. And there's this mystery in it, but it's a doctrine that the early church had to defend vigorously over the early centuries because it was constantly being attacked. It was constantly being twisted because people were like, that just makes no sense. That just sounds like fictitious. That sounds silly, but, but it's what scripture clearly teaches. And so that's why a lot of these early councils and early church had to be set up to put statements forth like the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed affirming Jesus, one male, two natures. British theologian J.I. Packer says this, quote, nothing in fiction is so fantastic as the truth of the incarnation. It's mysterious, and yet it's clear. Jesus is fully man and fully God, and he couldn't do what he was called to do unless he was. This is the God-man, and here is a glimpse of his glorious nature, a glimpse of his resurrected body, 
second sequence in this scene. You have the comrades. You got, you got the comrades. While transfigured, all of a sudden there's Elijah and, and Moses, and, and they're talking with Jesus. So why are these guys showing up now? Like, this is just getting a little strange, isn't it? Well, again, a rooted knowledge in the Old Testament sheds light upon this because Elijah and Moses were known to be the precursors to the coming Messiah. And every good first century Jew knew this. Because they represent the two main divisions of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets. A couple of things that confirm this. Deuteronomy 18, you can follow on the screen. Moses is giving final instructions to the nation of Israel before he died, before they are preparing to enter into the promised land. Listen to what he says in 18 and 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. This is the entirety of the Old Testament. You go back and you read it. It's always pointing ahead to somebody. It's always pointing ahead to something that's coming. Jesus is never mentioned in the Old Testament, but he's all over it. Later, verse 18, same chapter, again on the screen. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. But the most prominent prophetic passage that spotlights both Moses and Elijah is Malachi chapter 4. It's the final verses of the final chapter of the final prophet in the Old Testament before silence falls over Israel from God for 400 years. We read this, Malachi 4, 4 and 5. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Their presence on the mountain validates who Jesus says he is. They are forerunners to the Messiah, the one who will come to set God's people free. Third sequence, top of the mountain, the terror. The terror. It, it's here where we kind of get snapped back to reality that there's just three normal guys watching this. Peter, James, and John are there, and they are just literally speechless. And can you blame them? Like, they are witnesses now to something that's never been seen before. And so that's why I'm prone to want to give our guy Peter some slack on this one for what he blurts out. Like, I just want to just put him off the hook, all right? We all know the person in our friend groups, okay? Maybe you're this person, all right? Maybe I'm this person who just can't stand awkward silence, all right? And they feel the need, they just have to talk because if I don't talk and nobody talks and this is like needles in my eyes, I hate this, right? So they'll just kind of blurt out anything even though it makes no sense. Just can't stand silence. Like that's kind of who Peter is in the Bible. Silence is deafening. So Peter sees this. He's terrified. And he just says the first thing that comes to his mind. Jesus, this is good. This is good that we are here because I have an idea. All right? There's three of you. Let's make three tents. One for you, one for Elijah, one for Moses. Let's set up camp. Plus, Luke gives us a really small detail that I think matters here that Mark doesn't. Luke tells us that Peter, James, and John actually fell into a deep sleep when they got to the top of the mountain. So they awoke to see Jesus transfigured and Moses and Elijah there. 
So not only is he terrified, Peter just woke up from a deep sleeping nap. All right, now I'm just saying, we we just got to cut him some slack here, all right? Okay, personally, I never used to take naps. It was like a pride point of mine. I don't need to nap. I sleep at night, all right? And then I became a dad. (laughs) All right, so now I nap, all right? And about 50% of them are unintentional naps, all right? But here's what I've found out since now I start taking naps. The first two minutes after waking up from a nap, I should be trusted with nothing, all right? I am in another world. Like, it's far different from when waking up in the morning for some reason. I don't know where I am. I don't know who I am. I don't even know I'm a father. Why is there a kid in my face? Okay, that's my kid. I know you. But, like, there's, I'm just like, it's so strange. Like, an out-of-body experience. And so I'm just saying, my own empathy for Peter, I'm, I'm letting him off the hook. All right? He woke up from a nap, and he's terrified. Because he said, uh, Jesus, let's set up camp right now. But let me just say this in all seriousness now. Anytime someone in the Bible encounters the physical glory of God, do you know what the response is? Every single time? Terror. We cannot handle God in all of his glory. And if it weren't for the person and presence of Jesus Christ, it would destroy us all. And one of the biggest heartbreaking problems in our day is that we live in a world where God has been stripped of his godness. And not just in the world, like in our churches, where we have managed to create a false kind of harmless God that strikes no fear into our hearts because he's wearing a white robe and sitting on a cloud playing a harp. And and the idea of encountering God is almost used as something that's just intriguing and it's lighthearted and it's kind of cool or it's just kind of boring and uninteresting, like who wants to encounter God? And, And so is it possible that we are so distracted in this world, so drawn to this world that we miss the weight and profound power it is to truly encounter God? So listen, nothing will make us more desperate for a savior in our life until we truly encounter the glory of God. Let's go to the fourth sequence on this mountaintop, the the voice. The voice, uh, aside from Peter speaking, Mark records just one other voice. And while we can agree to dismiss Peter, we ought to really dial into this one. A cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. This cloud is the the glory cloud. Again, going back to the Old Testament, the, the Shekinah glory cloud. It's seen all throughout the scriptures. It's a cloud that came at mountaintops where God encountered his people. It's a cloud that filled the tabernacle and led God's people from place to place. It is the physical presence of an invisible, all sovereign, and powerful God. And out of the cloud, the voice of the Father validates. Jesus as his son. This is my beloved son. And then a direct command to the disciples. Listen to him. I love the simple power in throughout the whole gospel of Mark. First with Jesus, now with the Father. You see, God does not need a lot of words to get his message across. Jesus is my son. 
listen to him. So, so let's put this in context. Okay, Jesus had just told his disciples for the first time why he was sent into the world, to, to be the suffering Messiah, the, the king who was crucified so that those who believe in him will be saved from their sins. And then in order to follow him, people must take up their own cross and walk the pathway of suffering into glory. Isn't that a hard word? Wasn't last week a little tough, just a little bit? Don't you think the disciples were struggling with that? Perhaps after hearing it and, and they were maybe having some second thoughts in their mind about following him, talking amongst themselves, just going like, man, maybe this is not the guy. Maybe, this, maybe we don't really know what we're signing up for. Maybe, maybe this is not what we were looking for. Maybe we should bow out. Maybe there was an initial reaction of hearing what Jesus says and thinking, I don't like it. I just don't like it. And so that's why Jesus brings them up to the mountain to see something that no one has ever seen, a glimpse into the glory of Christ. And then they are exhorted by God himself. Can you imagine this? Listen to him. Yes, it's hard, but it's true, and it's best, and it's right. Listen to him. Like, what a moment that is. How timely it must have been for them. And then, just like that, everything is gone. The cloud is gone. Elijah and Moses are gone. Jesus is back in his uh, kind of earthly form, just standing before them going, you guys ready to head back down? What do you say? Let's go ahead and get started before it gets dark out, right? Like, wh what would they have been like? Oh my gosh. So let's read about the trip down, verses 9 through 13. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. I can't spend too much time here, but as they head down the mountain, they, they're just reflecting on what they saw, right? You go on a nice big hike, and you come down, you reflect what the mountaintop was like. You're talking about it, the view, the scene, the power. And Jesus says, guys, keep this to yourselves for now. Until I rise from the dead, then let it out. But until then, just keep it to yourselves. And so they're wondering, like, okay, what does that mean now? Like, do we rise from the dead? And what was that up there? Like, they're just kind of talking amongst themselves. They're kind of confused. Their heads are spinning. And they managed to get out one question. Oh, okay, Jesus, just tell us this. You know, people say that Elijah must come first. So if you're the Messiah, and it's written in the Scripture that Elijah must come first, we just read it, right, in Malachi 4, what, what's up with that? And Jesus says something fascinating. It, it's, it's hard to catch it. But he responds saying, yes, it, it does say that. And Elijah does come first. But doesn't it also say that the Son of Man should suffer many things and be rejected? You see what he does there? He flips it on them. He says, the scribes and the scholars who were so... Um, 
so like into the scriptures and know it back and front, and they're the professionals, and yet you guys who learn from them are completely missing something. How is it, if the scriptures say that, that you are still so shocked when I say, I must suffer? Because doesn't the scripture say that? How do the scribes overlook Genesis 3, 15, Psalm 16, Psalm 22, most notably Isaiah 53, where we read about the one who is coming, that quote, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. It's all there. It's always been there. You just haven't had the eyes to see it, and you haven't had the ears to hear it. It's because you chose to hear and listen to what you wanted to hear, not what was true. But then he does go ahead and answer their question anyway. He says, I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did to him what pleased them. Matthew 17 provides more insight into that statement that the disciples understood that when Jesus said that, he meant that the spirit of Elijah, the spirit of a forerunner prophet, has come in the person and the work of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist came and did what Elijah, what the Old Testament says Elijah would come and do, and then he was rejected and killed. All right, that's a deep dive into the transfiguration. It's a lot of moving parts. It's a lot of Old Testament allusions and connections that that tie Jesus to the scriptures of ancient past. But here's how I want to end. Why did this happen? We understand what happened, but, but why? What's the significance this would have for the disciples? And related, what significance, if any, does that have for you today? To ask that another way, Why did the disciples need a glimpse of the glory of Jesus Christ? What did it do for them? What could it do for you? Two things. To have faith and to live faithfully. First, to have faith. Jesus provided a glimpse of his glory so that Peter, James, and John would be strengthened in their faith in him as the Messiah. This is his aim. This is why he's bringing them up the mountain, to awaken faith, to open their eyes to who he is, to then strengthen faith in believing that he is the one. These three didn't earn their trip up the mountain. They didn't live in an especially holy way that just like, you guys are good, man. Let me show you something as a reward. It's not how this happened. He chose to bring them up purely out of his grace. And the response to the gracious revelation of who Jesus is, is faith. Faith, the, the means through which God transforms unbelievers into believers and the means through which he strengthens them. It's faith. The the Father validates his love for Jesus and his ministry because it is only by faith in Jesus Christ that people, you and I, and these three disciples go from being rebellious enemies who deserve death to those who are restored and forgiven and given new life by his death. This is why the transfiguration matters for them. This is why it matters for us. This is what I know. And I don't know much, but this is what I know. For those who receive the grace to see who Jesus is, can't help but believe. 
This is what Paul means when he prays for the church of Ephesus, that they, he's praying to God that they would have the eyes of their hearts opened, enlightened, that they might know what the hope is to which he has called them. We sang it this morning. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. That's not something we can do ourselves. That requires grace. And so I want you to hear me. I want to be very clear. Believing in Jesus, putting your faith in Jesus, does not mean all of your questions have been answered beyond the shadow of a doubt. The disciples still had questions. They asked one on the way down the mountain. But rather, believing in Jesus as the Christ is to experience his presence and power in such a way where you put your faith in him even in the midst of questions. That's what faith is, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It's not blind faith, but it's rooted faith. Faith in Jesus taking your place on the cross, of dying for your sin, and in exchange, giving you the righteousness he possesses. So now when the Father looks at you, he does so with all the love and affection that he looked at Jesus on top of the mountain. Think about this, that when Jesus looks at you, everything you are, everything you've done, because of what Jesus has done, he looks at you and says, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter. Jesus brought them up the mountain to awaken and strengthen faith. And then second and finally, the transfiguration happened so that you will live faithfully. Hang with me here, okay? When the Father said to Peter, James, and John, listen to him, that's a command, isn't it? It's a command that shapes their lives, that ought to shape their life, and it says that the result of true saving faith that often gets forgotten about is obedience. God does not save us because we obey him, but because God saves us, we obey him. We're clear on that, right? He saves us for good works, He frees us to do that, and without the motivation to listen, that command is useless. We all know how to do things in our lives that we think we should be doing, but if we don't have the motivation to do it, isn't it useless? And so obedience comes from beholding the glory of Jesus Christ and then listening to the word of Christ in that order. It's what happened on the mountain. First, they behold Jesus as the Christ all that he is, all his radiant glory, and then they have the motivation to listen. To live faithfully in obedience, that's a lifelong journey for all of us, and we will never be perfect, but we will, by God's grace, grow over time. And at the center of that journey is the call to behold Jesus Christ. Think about the timing of the transfiguration. Jesus just said some really hard things. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. In the chapters that are coming, he will say more hard things. Fair warning. Right? Things where the disciples and things where we might have an initial reaction of, I don't like this. This isn't what I wanted to hear. It's not how I think things should work. That's offensive to our modern minds and sensibilities. And the question is, What are we going to do in those moments? What are we going to do in those moments where we don't like it? 
Will we abandon the words of Christ and follow our own desires and how we think things make sense? Or will we live faithfully and listen to him? It's a decision we're all going to make. And it's a decision we need to make every single day. The reason why these three men and the millions of followers who come after them are able to listen to Jesus is because we behold his glory. The glory we get a glimpse of on top of the mountain. This is how true growth happens. This is what it looks like to live faithfully. Because the disciples, they had faith. It was a small faith. It was a young faith. It was an immature faith. And, and they needed to grow. And the key to growth is beholding. There's one word we need to recapture in our day in the church. What is it mean to behold? To stare at the glory of Christ. Because that is the motivation that we need to obey. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all, we all, himself included, myself included, we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. It's slow. Slower a lot of times than we want, but it's one degree to another by beholding the glory of the Lord. You know a question I get asked sometimes as it pertains to preaching? It's, Pastor, why, why don't you give more practical application in your sermons? Why aren't your sermons filled with more of, here's five more ways to be patient, here's three ways to be a better spouse, here's two ways you can be more generous? Things that really apply to our lives. And what I'll try and get across is that the key to growth in the Christian life and overcoming sin and overcoming problems that we all have is not by staring at how you can do better. It's by beholding Jesus Christ in all of his glory. That is our only hope for real change. So do you want to become more patient at work? Do you want to be more patient with your spouse, more patient with your kids? That's a good desire. You know how it happens? By beholding Christ, who was patient with you and loved you despite your rebellion. Do you want to grow in compassion for the least of these and be more generous with your time and your talent and your treasure? Stare at Christ, who had everything and yet emptied himself on the cross in order to restore you totally and completely. Do you want to be freed from the enslavement of pornography? and sexual sin that you have felt hopeless to overcome, and nobody else really knows about it, but you know it's been just over you for years, and you can't get away from it. Do you want to be free from being a slave to sexual sin? Stare at Christ, who was tempted in every way but did not sin so that he could pay for yours. So when God looks at you, you are pure, complete purity, white as snow. Beholding Christ is what provides the right motivation and example to overcome, to grow, to transform. Sure, there are practical steps involved, but it never starts there. It always starts with beholding Christ. Because you need the right motivation before you determine how you ought to do it. We want you to walk out of here week in and week out from Grace Church, not with a list of things of what you need to do to do better. We want you with a vision of Jesus Christ high and lifted up.
for all to see the vision of a Christ who loved you so much that he gave his life for you. That's what awakens faith. That's what provides motivation to seek long-term meaningful change. This is why we need the story of the transfiguration, to have faith, to live faithfully. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you how it is living and active, and you still use it to pierce the minds and hearts of your people. Father, I pray that is true today, that your spirit would just be doing work over us all, stirring our hearts for you, lifting our eyes off ourselves, and beholding your son. We thank you for the gift that he is. We thank you for the power and motivation that comes with believing in him that leads to real, meaningful change that will turn the world upside down by your grace. It's your name we pray. Amen.